Hello, ASPN listeners, and welcome to a special Field Notes program. Uh, we have with us as a guest today the one and only Tyler Buckingham, co-host of the American Shoreline Podcast. And we've got a tradition, Tyler. We do Field Notes when either one of us take a big trip, particularly if it's coastal, uh, to come back and talk about it. And this is a great Field Notes edition because you just came back from a sailboat in the damn Florida Keys, uh, and it sounded like an awesome trip. Yeah, yeah, I am back. You might be able to hear the relaxation in my uh, voice. I, I'm recalling uh, that episode of Surf Sail Seafood. Uh, yeah. that, and they were like, yeah, man, just the traffic just really bugs me. And I, I can attest that after being at sea for only a week, they were, at, they were gone for a full month. But uh, even for only a week, I thoroughly got away. Yeah. Uh, and got to... Physically ex- removed from the land. Totally. Um and got to experience something, uh, a place on the American shoreline that I really had totally overlooked, the Florida Keys. So I would just characterize that this this podcast is definitely dedicated to the Florida Keys. And, uh, you know, it was just a, a treat to be able to go and experience uh, an amazing feature in the world, but let alone to have it on the American shoreline. I count myself uh truly blessed to be able to experience it from the water and yeah from the water you know it's amazing to drive down there which i have done one time in my life but uh to do it with on a sailboat um and it was a great boat i understand 45 foot catamaran what was it called the uh lagoon 450 lagoon 450 she's a wow. french vessel really yeah and her name was sundance all right so what did you think man let's start what like take us on board give us like a little tour of the boat Yeah, so uh, a Lagoon 450 uh, sailboat is uh, a catamaran, two hauls, uh, is a stout uh, catamaran. Um, Again, 45 feet long. She has four primary cabins, uh, two in each hull, and then there's a captain's quarters way up in the bow on one hull, on the uh, port hull, and then on the starboard hull is the captain's head. Uh, wow. So the captain has to, if he, if, if he or she wishes to uh, go to the bathroom at night, would have to crawl up through the hatch. There's wow. no door or anything. <laughs> and then walk over the trampolines and then go down uh, several steps into the this head up there. Um, but uh, she's just a, a, she was a great boat. She's old. She was made in 2005 and she's been chartering. So this would be like having a rental car that was yeah, okay. 15 years old. It's I a mean, bare boat charter, right? Well, you, you, it comes with no crew. It comes with you, you just get the boat and you, you get to go. That's correct. You get uh, the, the charter company um, would furnish you with a captain if you wanted one. And, and very often people might do a day. They might do two days, just a weekend trip down to Key Biscayne. Um, this boat is uh, docked in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, the name of the charter company, I believe, was called Fun in the Sun Charters. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. Shout right. out to Fun in the Sun. Shout out to Fun in the, the Sun. Send them an invoice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they uh, and this was their oldest catamaran. This was definitely the beater of the fleet. Okay. But we, you know, that put it into our price range. This is not uh, inexpensive uh, for the full week for just the boat. We're talking about, I think it was like fifty-five, five. Let's say fifty-five hundred bucks. Really? Yeah. And this was a, a eight-day rental period. This was a seven-day okay. Sunday to Sunday rental period during the off season. Wow. It would be more expensive yeah, during yeah. the winter time. 
Wow. And because it's during the hurricane season, uh, they do have a policy that if a storm comes and there's like a hurricane warning, you do get to, you know, you can keep the the reservation and move it to another uh, time in the year. Yeah, that's good. That seems um, fair. Of course, that's what our minds were on before we left. And even while we were out, we were just kind of keeping an eye on the weather. All right. But I'm happy to report that the weather was just not uh, in any way a problem for us. In fact, it was it was great, great weather. The entire so it worked week. out. What was the coolest? I mean, you just got to start at the top. What what was what was great? What was amazing? What was the coolest part of that whole experience? Um, what jumps out? Well, you know, again, we've got uh, the the vessel itself is cool. I mean, the excitement of going to sea, and you know, initially I was like, let's just go out and sail for 24 straight hours and get as far from uh, Fort Lauderdale as possible. But our stalwart and wise captain said, oh, no, no deckhand, which is what I was. I, I think on my previous show, I might have characterized myself as a first mate. No, way. I think you said first mate. Yeah. I was I was the deck hand. Really? Oh, yeah. Come on. No. I mean, I, we, we, we developed a good rapport, but let me tell you, my... I became a much better mariner. I mean, for trip. the audience out for there, sure, Sailor uh, Tyler has owned a sailboat <clears throat> and recently sold it. So it's it not, you're, not, you're not an entire rookie when it no, comes to sailing. But, but there is so much. I, I, our captain, Norbert, uh, who uh, is the spouse of Carmela. Uh, so I'll go through the, the yeah. crew in a minute. But um, truly, uh, working with and under Norbert was uh, uh, worth the price of admission at f- right period uh, just to learn from this guy this guy grew up so he's German when he's a little kid I'm talking like 12 years old his parents pull him out of school they buy a boat in, Ger- in Germany and they sail to South America wow and so he grows up his formative years are all on a boat I mean crossing the Atlantic and and at one point he becomes a teenager in Brazil, and his parents just leave him there. They're like, well, you are now a teenager. You're too hard to handle on our little mono hall. <laughs> too tight quarters. Put him ashore. They just left him there. Wow. And so he he was he had no money, and he just he went to the place that he knew where like how it worked, which was the harbor, which was the marinas. Okay, and he got a job because he was by this point he had years of yes. experience under his belt, and it's reflex. So. When I'm on deck, I mean, it sounds like they were intentional. I would assume that you know, as parents, you're like, you know what, this is going to be the growing up experience. We're going to drop him off here. He's a skilled guy. He can find a way to get around in Brazil and crew a boat. And is, do you think it was, or were they pissed off that he was? <laughs> I mean, which of the two do you think that is? I think it was the latter. Do uh, you? Yeah. I mean, were, I think <clears throat> they were deliberate. Certainly, that uh, in their choice to pull him out of school and that the education he would receive um, sailing around would be, you know, let's just say if they waited out, they at least believed that it was a worthwhile uh, trade. Um, And interestingly, Norbert is now considering this uh, with his son, uh, Winstrahl, which is German for wind, uh, who's now three months old, but they are, he and Carmela are considering buying a lagoon 450. So wow. this was a trial wow. run on a a like boat. Uh, they would probably go with a newer one, certainly one that was in better condition than this one. I mean, this right. one, because it had been chartered for so long, was just kind of beat beat to hell. Okay, um, and it was still 
plenty comfortable. It fun everything functioned mostly. Yeah. Um, but you know, there's it. There's no mistaking that this was a very well loved boat. Yeah. Okay. And this kid's three months old. He was on board. How did he do on his first sailing trip? Oh, was this he, the kid's first sailing trip? Yes, it was. <coughs> and, right. you know, it was... Uh, Winstrahl. Winstrahl. He, uh, he was happy as a clam. You know, at that age, it's almost perfect because they're just... It's true. They're little three-month-old babies, but... They're kind of blobby. They, there's not a lot going on. <laughs> there's not a lot. You know... <laughs> I'm a father. I can say that. They're, they're, they're cute. They don't do a lot. They don't do a lot. They eat and they poop and yeah. they hang out and sleep. Uh, yeah. yeah. Mostly sleep and eat and poop. So yeah. uh, Carmela mostly managed that and Norbert was managing the boat. And it was a, that's a, this is a huge undertaking. So, you know, from everything from... Just basic. We're bringing up the anchors. We're running the generator. What's our power? What's our situation? What's our navigation? Where are we going? Where are we heading? What's the yeah. weather? All of this stuff. Nav. He's got in his head and is managing, and he did just an amazing job of it. Wow. Uh, I'd love day. to meet him. It sounds like a really great guy. He's he's incredible. I, I really look forward to sailing with him again. I mean, at no point in this trip did I ever feel like, we were taking an unnecessary risk, as you might imagine, for a captain who's got yeah. his his kid on board, his wife and his baby. That's right. So, and then we had uh, I mentioned, of course, my girlfriend and I, and then Leslie, who is, uh, a, I fair to say, our uh, our senior person, not a senior citizen, Leslie. I'm saying like <laughs> you were the that's oldest very, member of the, that's treacherous. Territory. I'm not calling Leslie a senior citizen. <laughs> she was the most experienced crew member. How's that? I, with life, yes. Yes, with life. With uh, the most life experience. From from New Orleans. <clears throat> All right. Um, daughter lives in Austin. She's got some kids. Got to meet her. She, at, By the way, she uh, used to work in the uh, offshore energy business. She, really? She made mud containers. Oh, yeah. We know that they put the mud on the things. She, uh -huh. she was in that line. Yeah. Um, yeah. But she was just a she was great to have on board. We would have typically a you know around five p.m. Leslie and I would have a martini. <laughs> she brought style to the operation. I, I, yes, and I appreciate that very yeah. much. But you know, a typical day in the life of a of a Florida Keys sail. So let let me start with and just yeah. talk about the approach. So we decided to stay in the Florida Keys area for several reasons, but. Um, one is it's very accessible out of uh, Fort Lauderdale. Uh, you could either go out to the Bahamas, which was kind of off limits for us because of COVID. Uh, there's Bim hmm. the Bimini uh, Islands out there, um, which are uh, beautiful and very cool. Hmm. But uh, because of the international travel associated really? with that, we, we, we they wouldn't that. let you come and anchor and go go ashore. And we had a baby with an O uh, passport, and there's just uh, there's yeah, okay. there's stuff going on. I'm sure we probably could have done it. You know, it's not if you're mooring up and stuff. I don't yeah, know what how they're going to do. I don't you know, know. We need but, some ice when they say. Sorry, but we're not. We 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 went instead to the Keys, which um, had several advantages for us. But you know, we had cell phone reception, and Carmela's mother. Uh, was in the hospital. She was actually supposed to be on board. So it was uh, very good for us to be able yeah, to stay in touch. Absolutely. Um, and so I was honestly not wanting to do the keys uh, before the trip. I really wanted to go to the dry tortugas, which are way out there. We have, would have had to really sail hard. But 
we ended up doing the keys and I could not be happier that we did. So I'm curious about why, you know, why that wasn't, I mean, it's not as exotic, right? It's American. You can kind of, I mean, what was it about? You can drive them. I was like, well, why would I want to use a boat to access something that I can just take a, a vehicle to? Right. And, um, this turns out to be really, I think one of the more profound sentiments that I carried with me on the entire trip. But, um, you know, for whatever reason, it's it just didn't have the... You're right. It was an exotic thing, and it was... I just wasn't as switched on by the idea of going to the Keys. Um, I didn't know what to expect. I had never researched the Keys. I don't... I mean, I've seen footage and shit yeah. from the Keys, but I just didn't know much I about it. I understand that, though. But I'll tell you, in, <clears throat> in sailing it, it was... Um, it was incredible. And the Florida Keys are just an absolutely incredible feature on the American shoreline. So it's a coral reef system. The whole thing is about coral. And uh, they are basically the remnants of old coral reefs that are, you know, as sea level has dropped. Is that right? Yeah. This so was that's cor- the landmass, of okay. course. Okay. All right. And surrounding them, there is an outer reef, if you can imagine, kind of, I would say, in some cases, it's two and a half miles okay. off from the island, Okay, is where the kind of the healthiest outer rim of the reef is. And then just beyond that, you hit kind of the Atlantic Ocean. Got it. And then, of course, on the other side of the Keys is the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah. So they uh, they occupy this really in borderlandy zone. Yeah. Transitional between. Totally. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, the, and there's all sorts of interesting uh, hydrology, too. There's, like, freshwater inflows that come up from the bottom. And yeah, that's crazy. That's weird, right? Yeah. And, uh, of course, the, the islands have been developed. That's the other thing. So when you're sailing by through South... So we leave out of Fort Lauderdale, and you're sailing down the Florida coast to Key Biscayne, which is the first key. Okay. And it's just a wall of coastal development. Yeah. I mean, it looks like, I mean, Miami's skyline is obviously the big, big, big feature, but it is hotels lining the entire street. For miles. For miles, up and down that shoreline. And you reach Key Biscayne, and there's development on there. Yeah. And And there's causeways coming out. And so there's this, when you're approaching it from the boat, though, you also see the undeveloped little micro islands, I'll call them these, and, you know, just mangrove areas that are really submerged i mean they're where the land is yeah you know maybe it's a couple foot depth sometimes maybe it's uh exposed, above, exposed yeah. but it's and there's a lot of that out there uh the mangrove growth was incredible i mean you get into the the back the the gulf side and it's it's all it's similar to the everglades i would say you know in terms of just it's mangrove channels and totally. little inlets and yes. all of this cool stuff and the water clarity i mean you look into the water and you can just see uh, it's just beautiful water clarity it's one of the great things about the shoreline in general i think we talked about this when we were in ventura you know it, even in a place where we've developed the hell out of it uh, the beauty of the water and the beauty of these land masses f- somehow filters through and survives as an experience. Uh, the fact that, you know, there's a highway running down the Keys, but but it still has this richness and this, it, yeah, right? I mean, 
exceeded your expectations. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it did. Um, and in particular, you know, so our first day we get down to Key Biscayne, we anchor up um, and enjoy a very warm night on the boat. We hadn't figured out how to really run the air conditioning or if we would run the air conditioning yet. And it was needless to say, hot in that bed in the cabin. Um, but the next day we kind of set a rhythm that would, we would pretty much run every day, which was that we would wake up in the morning, have coffee. Norbert comes out of bed like a tornado (laughs) ready to, he's making crepes or making pancakes. He's got the charts out. He's like, Tyler, where you want to go? He's in command. Oh, and he's, and he's rested. Mm -hmm. It's, this is his freshest moment. And, uh, we would come up with a bit of a plan and it usually went with uh, go out, sail out to, you know, we're near a, we're near a key. We're using the key kind of as a, a harbor kind of zone. Boring spot. Exactly. So we'll sail out to the outer reef, find a cool place to dive. Uh, the, you know, just we're just looking at the chart and saying like, well, that's about seven there. Let's try there. Like, okay. And, you know, just, you're just looking at it and you're guessing. Um, and then... We would do we and we would do that and we'd go out and we would dive and scoop uh, snorkel for about you know an hour and a half and basically until you're exhausted. Cool way to start the day. Just snorkel. You've until had a you're little. Exhausted. You've had a little coffee. You've had some pancakes. Something good to eat. You yeah. sail out and you're getting down in the water. And how's the condition and the health of the reef out there? Generally speaking, well, I mean, the, I mean, it's it, in areas where it's great. It's great and it's magical. It's one of those like truly perspective changing experiences when you look down yeah. at an ecosystem so packed with life. But in the same breath, I can't overlook the fact that the vast majority of the reef has has been bleached. Yeah. And it took me I couldn't even believe it at first. I was like, it, it, th- all of this that I'm looking at yeah. for miles and miles around, this yeah. is all dead. And Norbert was like. Dude, imagine coming here, you know, imagine being the first Europeans to see this thing. I mean, it would have been insane. Yeah. And so what we have now is probably 80% dead, 20% Hmm. hanging on. Some of those areas that are hanging on are looking good. Yeah, okay. But the pressure on, it's just this ever-tightening noose. Yeah, because people want to get to that. Exactly, because that's where you you spearfish, and that's where the lobsters are, and that's where, and so... It's, I think that Man. there's, there's even still the good parts will, would make you think that would make a believer out of you. I, there's, I have nothing to say, say negatively about the good parts other than, man, there's an analogy to climate change and that we've, we've exhausted this reef. And this is where, what you see from the boat that you don't see from the land. Yeah. Okay. When you, when you're <clears throat> in the boat and you're looking at the land, you see you see the development and you also are passing instead of t- taking the highway, which is just a highway. It's a causeway or whatever. Yeah. You are over the dead reef or you're over the live reef. You're actually dodging it. In many cases like, Hey Tyler, yeah. I need you up on the bow. Yeah. Look down at the bottom. Tell yeah. me how deep it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know if we trust these charts. Things mm-hmm. have changed. And, um, so just you, you are really much more a part of it when you're out there. Yeah. Um, but there's no question to start the day with just ba- basically a full workout of snorkeling and diving. I really was trying, as I mentioned in the previous podcast, I wanted to do 
some spear fishing and I, you know, I got my fishing license and I got my spear fishing thing and I got Did my you? lobstering okay. endorsement. Cool. And unfortunately, uh, well, first of all, my breath support was just terrible. Takes a little training to get I mean, into. my first day I was like practicing and I could dive down to like seven feet for about two seconds. <laughs> right. And I was, you know, really by day two, I was down to 10 feet for several seconds and by day four and five, I was easily going down 18, 20 feet and, you know, able to like, you know, there'd be a lip under the coral and I could, I wore these great gloves for lobstering, but I could peek my head in and yeah. upside down and look in there. And it was just magical, ladies and gentlemen, to do this. <laughs> I, um, but I had to really yeah. work up to it and that I owe that to just every day doing a lot of dives. You know, Norbert would warm up on the anchor chain. Yeah, so, so I, he it, would he would just Woody he would trace that anchor chain all the way down, which could be you know fifty yards, but you're pulling, so you can really yeah. move. Huh. But it really helps with the yeah. breath support, and you know it's equalizing good, your yeah, ears and totally your mask and all that. So I understand Selena, your uh, girlfriend was uh, this was the first time for her, right? Snorkeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she dug it or what? I mean, she, her mind was blown. I mean, she had never seen anything like that in her life. Um, and we're talking about someone who loves to eat seafood, is like otherwise, I would say, a lover of the beach, a lover of water, a lover of yeah. the natural environment, but had never had the opportunity to go out and go snorkeling, especially on a reef like this. I mean, this is, you know, we're the only, we're literally accessing. Yeah, were, were, a, were you guys, how was the crowd? I mean, were you pretty solo out there? So... For the most part, I mean, we there's there's I would divide reef uh, activity into two camps. Camp one is that it's a designated like Noah has actually put buoys out, and on the chart there's a designated reserve area or a preserve area, okay, a management area where there are mooring buoys and there are yeah no anchoring. These allowed. are the most iconic historically iconic parts of the reef that are left that have not been damaged hmm. so noah is doing a great job um in the yeah. federal waters and i think also in in some of the state waters you know there's the key biscayne national park for example where they have uh several uh mooring areas where there's just an amazing reef and it's very shallow so if you're a, ch a kid or you're an inexperienced <clears throat> snorkeler because it only gets up to two feet, the wave energy, you know, there's not a lot of current and you can really get close yep. to the action. Yeah. But what you don't get is the water column life that you get in deeper water. So there's something to be said for diving on a 20 foot reef because oh, yeah. you get the, you know, I saw a skipjack perusing through at seven feet and right. you just don't, you wouldn't get that. There are skipjack is not hanging out in two feet of water. Right on. Uh, we also saw a nurse shark just hanging out on the bottom. Some moray eel. Yeah, those in a are cool. reef hole. Just, I mean, they're sleeping. They're nighttime guys. Yeah, but the lobsters like to hang out with the moray eels because it's like a good defensive. It's very interesting who <laughs> hangs out with who. That's one of the weird things about the reef. It's like a lot of symbiosis. There it's is. called. There's a lot of yeah, and just like yeah. the snappers are hanging out with the nurse shark during the daytime because I guess the nurse shark is a nighttime hunter, I and the guess snappers so. know that like well, she might be a nighttime hunter, but. During the day, but she's still scary, and and you know <laughs> Good maybe place to hang out. yeah, if, if a big enough, juicy enough fish came by, maybe wake that. But you know, mm -hmm. I, it's just interesting to. 
observe all that. And yeah, Selena's mind was blown. Um, I mean, my mind was blown. I've, I've had the opportunity to, to dive on reefs in Hawaii, which is the only, my only other experience doing anything remotely like this. And it's so different. Yeah. Pacific it's so different. Caribbean. And just the topography, the way yeah. it drops off. I mean, this is just flat. Yeah. And it's all coral. I yeah. mean, it is all coral. Um, anyway, so we would do that. So that's that, that gets you to lunch, and then you get out of the water. And you're just starving. And yeah. we would eat an amazing... Our food was always amazing. I'll get to that back to that in a minute. But then we'd go out to the, the blue ocean and sail. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at lja.com. Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants offers high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, and the skilled and respectful crews to get your project built. Make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring the dune and wetland ecology of your home or barrier island. Learn more at coastaltransplants.com. Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at dunesciencegroup.com. And be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. We'd also throw a few lines off the back. Uh, Norbert rigged up these really cool uh, lures that we would troll with, but no no, uh, no rods and reels, ladies and gentlemen. Okay. We're just tying them off Hand to lines. Yeah. Hand lines. Yeah, okay. And we were quite effective. We got 10 tuna in wow. the course of uh, these false albacore type of tuna, and we ate them sashimi, and with the heads and spines and stuff, we made these French bouillabaisse-style soups. Wow. And um, it was, needless to say, between that and the lobsters we were pulling off the reef, the food was just <laughs> it was amazing it's absolutely spectacular and cool so in the afternoon so so you you have the you have the great lunch right you you, you do some probably have a beer. sailing yeah yeah and when's cocktail hour well you know, you know there's no go? rules of course at sea and uh typically after that first snorkel it was it was beer me and uh, get me some food. I was starving after that. I mean, it felt like doing a workout. Like you're just ready to, uh, to yeah. eat and have and have take a minute and just chill. And when we were done with that, it was uh, anchor up, and uh, we would navigate through that reef again because we were using usually in kind of a shallow area, so we'd have to be very careful and and diligent about getting out. But and then it was just read the wind. Where do we want to go? 
And fortunately, it was usually sales up. We were either motor sailing, so diesels and uh, sales, or just sales. And we just had, I wow. mean, it, uh, this was one of my favorite times of the day. Um, yeah, cruising. It was sunny. Those sails are great shade, um, actually, in the yeah. Caribbean in the summertime. So. so what are you on, the cargo net between the two uh, hulls? Is, um, that, is that the place to hang out in the cruise period? That or is in the back. That it was a common spot. That's a fairly sunny spot. The actually the side of the hulls are usually the most shade. By this time of day, you're looking for wind in the shade. Yeah, that's like right. those, those are the gold zones. <laughs> and so, right, um, right, like you're basically looking for that. And I would usually be up on the bridge with Norbert trying to um, just learn from him and see what he's thinking and. Right. He and then adjusting if, the sail, seeing how he sets it up. Oh, totally. Kind of the yeah. The would whole you, thing is that sail luffing. Bring it in a little bit. Let out on that one. He mm-hmm. used these words, and I, of course, I don't know what any of this shit means. <laughs> you know, right? And then yeah, he, I, I mean, took it's the wheel. Nautical turns a lot of lot of terms. And he would want to hang out with his baby a little bit. This was an opportunity for him to get off the bridge. So I uh, would occasionally get to man the helm, which right. was very cool. Yeah. Uh, we had an autopilot, so you know I, Norbert okay. became very good at like ten degrees starboard, and you just hit a button, and it would just do that for you. Did you have the uh, the the computer screen the, where you could see the alignment of the boat? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, we uh, had, you, a you had a GPS, a GPS chart, a visual. We had a GPS system, plotter, which is those are incredible. It is ours was not a good one according to Norbert, but we used it, and then okay. we had paper charts that we. Uh, would use in the morning sessions when we were really the paper charts were superior for like finding spots. Yeah, plotting it out and the re- day and the, just the n- amount of detail with the yeah with this digital GPS when you zoomed out you'd lose information. Right. Whereas with these depth contours go away. Yeah, so when you're when you have a paper chart, all of that information is there. So yeah. your brain it, um, is nav faster. charts are, and they're and nav charts are at least ones that we used up in up in Alaska. There's just all this historical information. They're just, just, it's like a buck. There's so yeah. much in it, you know, yeah. guidance and if you're shipwrecks, a, shipwrecks yeah. and history of who discovered it and what was the background on this island. And I mean, it's really cool. Uh, nav charts are, are fun as hell. Um, so how far down the keys? Like, so you guys, you've got seven days on the boat. Yeah. Well, it turns out <clears throat> the keys are pretty big. So, yeah. And we also made, I think, the very wise decision that we weren't going to turn this into a kind of marathon. How much distance can we do? Yeah, okay. So we ended up going about one-third of the way down to a little key called Indian Key, which I suggest everyone look up. It'll color in, you know, what the zone is like. But um, I'll tell you, I uh, had a profound moment at Indian Key. And um, it was right. it was after dinner. I had had a f- Leslie Martini, which was uh, delicious. And I was out on the bow by myself, uh, looking with the way we our boat was moored. We had this Indian key, which is an uninhabited little tiny key, and Highway One, the causeway, is right. kind of right behind it. And I'm looking back at this. It's nighttime. The anchor light is hanging, providing just this beautiful little light. And the stars are kind of going nuts. And there's lightning storms happening all around. Wow, on the, on the horizon. Just And, and closer wow. even. And I just was thinking about the, the development of this space. You know, having come down here 
one third of the way. It took us a, uh, not the, obviously the full week, but it right. took us three several four, days. Three days. Four days. Okay. And all that we saw and all that we experienced and all and, and good and bad things. I mean, all that bleached reef, too. And um, all of the different vessels we ran into. And I just and, and I and I'm seeing like semi trucks going back and forth, yeah. and presumably delivering food and T-shirts and beer and sure. stuff like that. And yeah, I just I, I got me Flip thinking blocks. about this uh, highest and best use concept of this space and how much of a conundrum it truly is because uh, you one could never look at the de- the decision to build that road and it basically open the keys for access yeah to every american with a car which is a lot more people than ever than americans with catamarans or in, boats in 1930s do you think i mean i don't That's know right. okay so remember in the in the in the uh in the national park series that ken burns did and and your buddy did um, there's this discussion about road access into the national parks and whether it was important and should be done and all of that. And, and there was a real argument there. And Roosevelt's pitch on it was, look, we've got to make this a place where people can get to if we want to keep it and we want it to be supported, people need to get into it. Is that kind of what it felt like is... Right. They decided to put a highway all the way down these tiny well, little chain of... I mean, it is kind of weird. Well, it's it follows just this... It actually mirrors the National Park um, thread precisely. And 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 for a reason, because that was the discussion in, this, in America at the time. So the original causeway was actually built by like a... a you know, at the time, I guess we would say a millionaire, a robber baron. Uh, and you'll have to forgive me. I don't recall the fellow's name, but he built a railroad and his thing was like, I want to be able to go from New York or Pittsburgh or wherever he was down and bring my friends down to this like magic land. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm build a railroad to get there so we can all bring, you know, in those days, if you were rich, you didn't have a private jet. You had a private railroad car. Yeah. Okay. And he was like, everybody like bring Carnegie or one of those guys. I no, it's, uh, it's, right. it's a big one, but right. you'll forgive me. I, I don't, I don't recall. Know. The th- that because of construction practices, because of st- a major storm that got damaged and destroyed, it just it never lasted. But the idea of turning and and still parts of that causeway uh, hmm. were basically it follows the exact routing. Wow! It's it it kind of laid the groundwork for doing it. So by the time of the '30s and these you know massive public works projects that. You know, this was considered progress. This yeah. was opening WPA, up the frontier. Jobs, access, yeah. all of that. There's, yes, precisely. And and stimulating the economy through oh now now you can have houses here. Now it's on there's a tax base. Oh now there's a there's a same commerce. argument today. Totally. Same thing going on. So what you don't and from the car, I think you might rather enjoy that like it, it would sure. be a little peculiar going from little island to little island and being in a car that's a little bizarre but nonetheless it's kind of cool but when you see it from the boat and you see all the dead coral and uh, you think about water supply i mean like here we are on the boat so we're kind of a little island you know yeah uh if you don't have like rain would be your water supply so water in the keys can be more expensive than diesel wow um 
So and it's and there's groundwater, which is you know fresh groundwater, which is in some of these keys. I well, it's kind of so. It's that so would be more toward the mainland of Florida. Like once okay. you get more closer to Key Biscayne, some of that groundwater seeps in to the limestone, which is you know I, my understanding is like this is old ancient coral yeah, from this very region. Porous. It's extremely porous, and then it can like migrate under. This is why in Florida you have those big sinkholes. Yeah. These are, you know, areas yeah, of dissolve. hollow yeah. yeah, hollow uh yeah, limestone stone. and so yeah, they can discharge out. You can have a freshwater lens on top which floats on the on the salt water. There right. can be okay, so um so what was that so that you said it was really profound to be at Indian King to contemplate sort of that this the, yeah. The, yeah, the development of this thing, uh, how it happened um I can't imagine that anybody who goes down there doesn't think, man, God, this would have been so cool back when, you know, however far they want to think back. I've got to think everybody probably experiences that. Like, what would it have been like? Well, I mean, that that is that is something that everyone ought to just do uh, whenever they go to anywhere. I mean, yeah, this is an exercise you can play in any place any shoreline around america at any time yeah all kind i mean but, the red i think of the redwood forest when totally. i'm when i'm in northern california in the redwoods and i think man these groves used to cover the whole pacific coast all the way south of san francisco and you're just like what would in, what an insane environment that would have been you know and now there are these little pockets and you know we've put a hole through it and we can drive through it and all of that stuff but you're like man this would have been what would have been like to come across that environment for the first time? It had blown you away. And I'm sure that's like the keys. It, this would have blown you away. I mean, it, I the only thing that I could think of is that it would have been like the Great Barrier Reef of Australia. It would have been like the Amazon rainforest. I mean, that's what we're talking about. Yeah. This, the, the concentration of life here is like nothing you experience in the terrestrial, in your terrestrial experience outside of a rainforest. Mm-hmm. So the fact yeah. that we have this and that we've basically allowed it to degrade to the degree that we have uh, as a society, we just have we're we've been OK with it doing yeah. this. And um, I yeah. I couldn't help but sitting there watching these trucks go by and these cars go by and think that, you know, maybe that was a mistake because there's two prongs to the to the national park dilemma. On the one hand, it's you got to you have to bring people into experience the yeah. spaces because uh, if they don't they won't value them and that's why they're there but the other part is like they're not just there for us now they're there for all future generations and it, the, the the purpose of it is so much more about teaching us about our place in the environment and that negotiation is the discussion that's the experience you want to yeah, promote. I mean, is that's, that that, that is the sense. and it's 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 not. There isn't an answer. That's the other thing. It's a question. It's a really, really, really good question. Hmm. I love the question, but it's a question that we really ought to spend more time talking about. Yeah, I you know, and it's it. I think it's a huge dilemma in terrestrial national parks. I mean, I've been to Glacier National Park in the summer where it is a traffic jam for miles it absolutely 
it completely undermines the experience. That's the same in uh, Yellowstone. And I have to say it was the same in going through the Sistine Chapel a couple of years ago when I was in Rome. I mean, it is such a mob. It is so over uh, accessed that the it undermines the basic experience. And when you look around the coast of the United States, you look at the national seashores we've created but, or, or, or the national parks down in the Keys or the state parks down in the Keys, these environments don't tolerate heavy, heavy use very well. You can, it really, you can kind of see it over time. Decades of this intensity. Um, I don't know if I'm being too pessimistic. Oh, I, I mean, I don't, I think that I don't hold, I'm not like bummed out on past generations for being, you know, it'd be really cool yeah. is if I built a, you know, a hotel on this key yeah, in the 50s, in the 60s, in the 70s. This was great. But what we know now about the coral, I mean, the thing is, yeah. like, this thing has been degrading. And and when it was at 80%, it was still so spectacular. But it's un, it's unignorable now. I mean, when you're right. basically, when you're diving on a reef, you're diving on a little reef island that is a surrounded, remnant. a remnant that is surrounded by... Yeah dead reef yeah so in the process of diving on the on the live reef you're you realize that there's this desert that surrounds you yeah it's impossible to not notice that yeah so uh, clearly it's depressing actually i I find it depressing when i'm when i see it um the yeah it's lifeless it's broken it's piled up there's bits and maybe a little few polyps on the end of it you know that are hanging in but you know the whole health of the system has evaporated and uh yeah it's depressing um i'm I'm sorry to be well and and i'll tell you i was very fortunate on board to be reading a book on uh, a person who i'm sure our audience just absolutely probably loves and is connected to jacques cousteau yeah. The book was called Jacques Cousteau, The Sea King by Brad Matson, And I've reached out to Brad. I'm, we're going to try to have him on the show. Right. So it's a biography. It's a biography of Jacques Cousteau. Cool. Who I, you know, Peter, I'm a little young for Jacques, I think. Yeah. You fucking ate him up. Yeah, no, he was my hero, you know, and I've heard a couple people uh, growing up in the 60s and the 70s. Um, he was the inspirer and in, in the shows in the Calypso and all of the stuff that he did and the books and everything in the films. And yeah, no, uh, it's why I became my marine biologist when I never lived anywhere near the ocean growing up. Yeah. Is because of him. But anyway. And we've heard that from several guests. We have. I mean, this is a common theme. And I think I, I watched a, a, a inter, a book talk with the author, Brad Matson. And he explained that in the course of writing the book and researching the book and also doing book talks, everybody's got, you know, so many people were inspired by Jacques Cousteau and they tell their stories and it's very important. I have to confess, I did not, this is not me. So I, but I knew he was an important guy. So I saw this book uh, on the boat and I said, you know what, I'm going to crack that bad boy open. And I really enjoyed it. I really could not put it down. Uh, it became part of my morning. I'd drink my coffee. I'd read this book. Norbert would be, you know, wow. making crepes and going wild, pulling out the charts, like trying to distract me. And I was just glued to this thing. And, um, you know, a couple things that I, I want to point out is, yeah, you know, Jacques started in the French Riviera there, uh, f- 
basically uh, using doing physical therapy in the water. Uh, he had a commanding officer. He was in the French Navy who said, hey, we, I noticed that your arm is giving you, you should try swimming, you know, low resistance. I go out there every day. I'll, I'll take, I'll show you where I go. And that was his introduction really to, you know, that body of water and looking through, for example, uh, goggles you know and being able to see underwater because they made goggles right they sort of worked they pioneered in, oh yeah yeah the, he was an inventive guy he's in he invented or collaborated with several other of these beach bums i mean he lived down there with these dudes who would just swim and they would they would hunt fish is what they would call it the fact they called themselves the muscamares hmm. like the musketeers of land <laughs> but the muscamares of the sea right and they they had a spear you know they pioneered all this equipment so they had like they would make uh diving goggles out of flight goggles right. um they would replace the leather with rubber or they'd coat you know they'd use rubber uh they made swim fins out of saw blades Wow. That they would then, you know, put rubber around for some straps, and that would be their fins. I mean, they, they just in, they were just pioneering what becomes scuba. The, yeah, the aqualung. They actually, he's part of the invention of he, the aqualung, right? And the regulator. All he of invents stuff. the aqualung um, during World War Two, uh, and and it's really this regulator piece. And the book goes into just tremendous detail on all this. And I'm I'm not going to do it on the pod, but um, you know, a couple things about Jacques' story that is so parallels the keys is, and this discussion of use and degradation, is that Jacques starts off, you know, just diving, going for fish, going for, he invents the aqualung. What's the aqualung? Access. Now, he, he always thought it would be a military thing, like only really, well, now all of a sudden people think about scuba diving today, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. It's huge. Yeah. And, huge recreational and sport. His career takes a real turn uh, in the 70s when he changes his tone. And instead of doing movies and shows on shipwrecks and beautiful coral reefs and these just kind of wonderland pictures. Yeah. He starts talking about now this is what the Mediterranean looks like today. And it had degraded tremendously. Yeah, I do remember. The fish that he was hunting in World War II as a member of the resistance. Gone gone yeah the lobsters that he was getting gone you yep. can't get a lobster in the mediterranean anymore no. they're gone yeah and and it, this this becomes the the true story of his of his environmental this is the root of jacques cousteau the great environmentalist that kind of his legacy uh, is today where he uh becomes an advocate for saving the oceans that was not Something that he even thought in the forties when he was, you know, thinking he was more of, of an adventurer back and a then. filmmaker, a little bit like Hemingway, a little bit, you know, guy adventure in the sea. I mean, know, he was he was a filmmaker. Artist. He yeah. was a filmmaker. He wanted right. to photograph the sea. He wanted to be a director, hmm. and he realized that he was good at diving, and he had a camera, and if he could do both together. He could be a filmmaker. He was onto something, and he and he turns clearly out, was. Turns out he was exactly right. Yes, indeed. So anyway, uh, okay. ladies and gentlemen, uh, if you are a Jacques Cousteau fan, please check out this Jacques Cousteau, the Sea King, Brad Matson. Um, and I just found the book to be learning about Jacques as a communicator 
of the ocean space. Peter, I just couldn't help but feel yeah. a degree of inspiration as he has inspired so many people. But, um, you know, we are trying to show this perspective of the coastal community and the interconnectivity of it all. And when you are looking at, when you're looking at the coast from the sea yeah. and you're just looking at Miami, you know what you realize? All of those little humans on that place are in it together. They might think that they're in the hotel industry or the whatever. They're all in the they're, same yeah, thing 100%, together. Yeah. And it just completely blurs the lines. You're like, well, you're, you're part of that, aren't you? Yeah. Well, that, the marina settles. guy, the hotel operator, the t-shirt shop guy, the real estate person, they are invested in one geographic context. And what they are doing individually is overlapping and impacting each other constantly plus the dynamic environment it's in i mean it's yeah it's totally cool to to see that vividly and i think that's you know uh that's what i think we're trying to talk about and i think we're talking about the people interaction of all that and uh Cousteau was trying to engage the public wasn't he i mean he was trying to inspire people and he certainly inspired me i would i'll admit to it no question so I think that does it for my field notes, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, <laughs> it was a, an absolutely outstanding piece. If you're out there and you're a... Uh, oh, I know what I got to follow up on yeah, before we on. wrap it up. One so, more story. I know this. Well, no. So I, I, we left with this Beach Boys thing, and I'll tell you. I oh, worked. yeah, the music. My God. Come on. Let's talk about that. I mean, well, we, you so know... I yeah. was thinking about the, the stupid connection. Coral, like the Beach Boys, or a, kind of a coral, a men's coral thing, versus coral. <laughs> I wrote that it's down. True. That's I right. wrote that bad boy it's down a, in my notebook. Yeah, no, it's a simple. Yeah, um, and uh, the Beach Boys. Just a simile, I think that's called. I'm not somebody who'll call us and tell it's us. It's some it sort of analogy. Yeah, but anyway. Yeah. Uh, the, the Beach Boys were excellent. We had a lot of cool. You did Brian Wilson's Smile album. We did. Right. Uh, uh, yes, and I listened to a lot of it, and it was it did not disappoint. I mean the. Let me tell you, it, it has that vibe. I talked about it on the last pod. Go back and listen to that section where I'm talking about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, Copeland-esque. Yes, I think and, you the, described and this Plymouth it. Rock song. Mm-hmm. And when you're on a boat and you're like watching the land and you're just kind of rocking back and that song, it's just like, wow, this is, he captured that, that vibe. We listened to a lot of Sloop John B, which yeah. is another uh, another thing. All right, we got to wrap this up, Peter. <laughs> I'm sorry, man. There's a guy at the door. He's got to fix a door at the studio yeah. here. So um, uh, we, we, we kind of pushed the limit. But Tyler, is a great, a great trip. And, and I'm glad you were able to get away and get down to this space. And it, it does help us think about what we're going to try to be doing in the future. So, uh, you know, there's some stuff that's going to grow out of that, I'm pretty sure. Um, no question about we'll it. we'll be telling people about down the road. Uh, everyone, if you have an opportunity, uh, don't don't pass over the Florida Keys get there while you still can they are magnificent and something we should really cherish as Americans right on Mm -hmm.